Hello, and welcome to Sobercast. We provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in a podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting Sobercast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Also, if you're a member of NA or have friends that are, please tell them about our other podcast, NAPOD. NAPOD features NA speakers and workshops in the same format as Sobercast. We upload a new speaker every day, and it's easy to subscribe by searching for NAPOD, N-A-P-O-D, all one word, on any podcast player app, or go to NAPOD.XYZ if you'd like to listen online. Hope you enjoy the podcast and have a great day. Good evening, everybody. My name is Henry, and I'm a recovering alcoholic. I, at the beginning, I would just like to uh, say that in addition to being an alcoholic, I'm also single and available. (laughs) And uh, I always like to get that straightened out, too. You know, this has been a great great experience uh, for me. I've heard of uh, uh, Blackstone for a good many years, and I, I never came down here. Uh, it was always, uh, well, the 10, 11 hours to drive down, 11, 12 hours to drive back. For some reason or other, I never never came down. But uh, I've heard so many things uh, uh, about, uh, about Blackstone. I've met Tommy up at uh, uh, Cook's Forest, and I've met many of your uh, trustees in different places, and I, I've always wanted to come here. And so I want to thank you, and I'm very grateful because I think that uh, I'll take an awful lot away uh, with me uh, from from Blackstone. It's been a, just a great, great experience uh, for me. Now, I know uh, how much time, and I know uh, I, I know we're long-winded up here, uh, particularly uh, uh, people from Cleveland. But being a lawyer from Cleveland is something else. And in addition to my uh, my story, uh, the last uh, oh the last twenty years of my life, I have been traveling uh, to various parts of the world uh, as a hobby, uh, visiting AA clubs. And so uh, AA clubs, AA members, and uh, and I've been to Africa several times, and Australia three times, and uh, England and Scott, well, all over the world. I let him, I spoke at a meeting in in Bombay, India, for example, and I went to the meeting in Singapore, and uh, uh, just all over the world. Well, a lot of experiences have come about uh, because of this traveling, and so I, I could very easily, very easily shift gears and go into a second lead, you see, so I have to be very careful. It's like a man leading a meeting for an hour and then saying, now I'm coming to the first step. Well, you sit back and say, well, that's another hour. And if you can give a good 12-step talk in an hour, you're lucky. I am, anyway. And so, uh, at the outset, I would like to tell a little experience I had in Toronto in 1965. I was asked by Eve, uh, I was uh, asked if I would speak uh, on uh, or at the international meeting on AA around the world from a, an AA traveler traveling members uh, point of view. And I wrote back and said yes. In fact, I think I called them up and told them I'd be very happy to. And uh, she wrote back, uh, or called me long distance again and said, she want me to write out a speech? Well, I never wrote out a speech in AA. And so I, I ducked that one and I wrote back and I said, no, I won't write a speech, but I'll give you a little outline. 
Well, the outline would take probably a half hour, and she wrote back, she said, no, you'll get seven minutes. Well, I realized I couldn't get them out of Cleveland in seven minutes, you know, to get, and to get these people around the world in seven minutes. And so I decided, and we had a wonderful group that particular day. We had a, a sea captain who had taken AA to India. Uh, we had another uh, sea captain there who had taken his ship into Turk Island to make a 12-step call. Turned his ship right around, and when this man asked for help and over the radio said he needed help, he was an alcoholic, and he was a lonely alcoholic. He didn't need it. He wasn't going to drink. He was afraid he might take a drink. And the sea captain turned to the radio man. He says, uh, turn around full speed ahead to Turk Island. And the, and the uh, radio man jumped up and shook his hand, and he says, I'm one too. And so they, they went in, and they met this man, and they used to make that as one of their ports of call, uh, the uh, Turk Island on, on Christmas Eve. And these were the type of men... And they had one lady there who had uh, uh, done a lot of work, uh, 12-step work, throughout the world. And so we were each given seven minutes. Well, the story I would like to tell here, before I start, uh, it's starting out in a little different vein maybe, but uh, uh, I'll get you, this particular story always interested me because uh, the story I told was how AA was brought to a certain part of Africa. Uh, if any of you people do any traveling or hear tapes, I know uh, Gene down here uh, has sent a lot of tapes. He has a lot of friends all over the world. And one man that he has in particular is Anton Esser in Durban. And uh, so this is one of the, the stories that I like, that I told at the International Convention. And it, it goes something like this, that the, uh, I, when I was in Johannesburg, I asked a man one day at a club, how did AA start here? How did AA start away down here in South Africa? And this man says, well, Henry, your answer just came in the door. So many wonderful things happen in A like that. And this man walked in. His name was Val D. Val D. I won't even give uh, his last name, but uh, Val D walked in the door. And they said, Henry would like to know how A started here. So I met this man, big tall, about 64. And he said, well, if you have a few minutes, I'll tell you. He said, you know, I was a drunken engineer in Springs, South Africa. And he says, my wife had left me, I had lost my job, and I was the drunkard in the town. I had worked for a gold mine, and he said, they fired me, and there I was without a job. Wandering around, and he said, the dogs would even walk away when I would come down the street. He said, I was a pathetic character. And he says, one day, I don't know why, but he said, I came to a little house with a white picket fence around it, and automatically I walked into that house, rapped on the door, and a little lady came to the door. She wasn't over four feet, two or three inches tall. She said, what can I do for you? What do you wish? He says, I want to see the sky pilot. I understand he lives here. She said, yes, my husband is a preacher. Do you want to see him? Yes, bring him out. So a little man came out. He said, did you want to see me? I'm the preacher. And this big drunk says, well, you're a preacher, could you help a drunkard? He said, I need a drink, I want to quit drinking though eventually, and he says, I need something to eat, I need some coffee, I need something. And the little minister says, well, come in. He says, all's possible with God in this house, come in. And the big miner walked into the house and sat down in the parlor. The little minister says, come on out in the kitchen, we'll have some coffee. And they had some coffee. 
And then the little minister said, let's pray together. And the little minister prayed for this big, this big minor, Val. And then the little minister turned to this man and he said, you know, a book came yesterday from the United States. He said it's called Alcoholics Anonymous. It's called their big book. I've never read it. The pages aren't cut. But it's the only book in Africa because I got the number one book in Africa. Why did Val go to that one house? That's always baffled me. Unless he was directed there directly by somebody's prayers, something got him into that house. The little minister says, we'll read this book together. And Val says, well, you'll have to because I'm too sick to read. And so the big miner stayed in his basement and the little minister and his wife read the book to him and they began, and these things were revealed to Val and he never took a drink from that day. And then the preacher one day at the church said, if there is anybody in my congregation who needs help, who has trouble with their drinking or is an alcoholic, come to my house or see me after the service. And a little lady walked up and she says, I'm a drunkard. Why, he says, you come to church every Sunday. She says, you ought to see me on Friday. <laughs> and the little woman said, well, how can you help me? He said, you come to my house at two o'clock this afternoon. There is a late, there is a man there in my basement who will help you. And the lady came. And AA was born in Africa, in this, in that section of South Africa. The little, the housewife and the miner, and then it grew and grew and grew. Well, I could go on with this particular story because the story goes in, into, uh, it leads up to the American consul who started AA in Durban, uh, Bob, who's now down in Sarasota, uh, Florida. And so it is, it was a wonderful story. Well, that was a story I told. And I think I went over my seven minutes and, uh, I was called down on that, but anyway, I got that little story over, and that's all I could tell. Well, I'm not held down tonight, you see, by seven minutes, uh, so I can I can go on. But I do, I have learned this, and I guess most speakers learn this, sooner or later, you pick up a conclusion somewhere. So I do have a conclusion to my talk, so I can sort of spring it on you anytime I want. So if you look a little tired or anything, boom, out comes the conclusion, and before you know it, it's all over. And your agony's over. Everything is fine. Well, I want to tell you a little bit about myself, my story, what I do to stay sober, which I think is very important, because I have met some new men here, men who are fairly new in the program. And I always have to think of these new men. And so I like to tell what I do to stay sober, what I did in the beginning, what AA has meant to me since I have come in, what happened to me since I've come in. You see, I became a skid road drinker. I became a skid road drinker. I, I ended up in the long overcoat, the World War I overcoat and the tennis shoes, wandering around skid roads in Sacramento and uh, Howard Street in San Francisco, Yesler Way in uh, Seattle, Los Angeles, Fifth and Main, just wandering around a lost soul after the war. Because I got to the point where, why work at all? Why work? And so I declared a real holiday and uh, resigned from all remunerative work and became a bum and liked it. And, uh, and so I could tell you the loneliness sleeping in, in flop houses when I had the money. A flop house at that time in Seattle cost 15 cents. 
If you had an extra quarter, you'd get a get a room with chicken wire around it. And if you had another quarter, you had a room with no radiator and no window. And I always ended up in the dormitory because that's where the action was. If anybody had a bottle, you'd hear the gurgles and you would congregate around that bed. And uh, many a time I used to wake up ready to join the French Foreign Legion and way out, you see, and uh, uh, no job, nothing to do. And I look back and look out and see that courthouse. And you know, a courthouse to a lawyer who isn't working, I guess it's like a like a, a church to a priest who's defrocked or a preacher who has resigned from because of drinking or something. And so I'd see that courthouse and see the lawyers going to work with their briefcases and uh, I'd just shake my head and say, why? And then I'd say, oh, it's the war. I'd tell myself, it's the war. And this is how I got. But now to get back a little bit, I'm going to tell you a little bit about myself, how I got that way. Why I'm an alcoholic, I really don't know. I don't know. And I don't. If you know, fine. That's your business. But I don't. And I might tell you this at the beginning before I forget it. See, I have never written out a speech, and so my mind will wonder. And uh, if something comes to mind, I will talk about it. And sometimes things that I would like to talk about, I forget to talk about. And one of the things that I would like to say at the beginning... I think, uh, was Dr. Bob's talk. Now you'll hear me talk probably more about Dr. Bob than Bill. Although I, I got to know Bill in New York, uh, but Dr. Bob I got to know when I first came into AA. Uh, Dr. Bob, of course, you could find him at King's School, uh, every Wednesday evening. And when I first came in, my sponsor took me to King's School almost every week, uh, to Dr. Bob's, uh, uh group. And Dr. Bob always talked to the new men. Didn't matter if there was a president of the Cleveland Trust Bank there. If you were an old man, if he was a new man, he'd probably get in line. But if uh, you were if you were a new man, no matter who you were, Dr. Bob wanted to talk to you. Man, woman, didn't matter. Race, didn't make any difference. He had you right down in the first row when the meeting was over. He'd lock those big legs. He had big, long legs, and, and his knees would would come up almost to your middle of your thighs like he just sort of lock you in there. And then he would start. And then that big finger would come out and he'd tell you what to do and what not to do. And I'll never forget one thing he told me. He said, Henry, there are musts in AA. You'll hear a lot of people say they're not, but I think there are. The big must for you now is come to these meetings. I never forgot that. And I've been coming to the meetings ever since. And then when 1950 came, and when he spoke at that conference, our first big conference, and he says the whole program of AA can be summed up in love and service, helping the other person. And that I've never forgotten. And then he pointed his finger and he says, keep it simple. So my program is one of simplicity. really is. Uh, and as I tell you what I do, the 24-hour program, it's a simple program. So uh, if, you're, if, you're, if you're here to hear anything abstruse, profound, uh, I hope you're not disappointed. But don't forget this simple program of keeping it simple, based on love and service, has kept me sober for almost 25 years, without a drink of any kind. My whole life has been changed. My whole life has been changed. From the skid road, uh, I'm back to the profession of my, the practice of the profession of law, which I trained for at the University of Virginia in this state. I spent seven years of my life at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville, and I loved every minute of it, loved every minute of it. And uh, in fact, when I was through medicine, I was planning on taking, or through law, I was planning on taking medicine. 
to stay at the university. Wonderful school, wonderful place to live. It was a wonderful place to drink. And uh, believe me, that's where I flourished uh, as an alcoholic. Took my first drink at the University of Virginia. And so, so many wonderful things have happened. I'm back with my sister and brother who had cast me out. I'm back to my profession. I have paid off all my debts. I mean the ordinary debts, $20 here, $50 there. Paid them all back. It took me four years to just pay back my debts. And when, it, when I had paid all my debts back, they said, that's one of the steps, Henry. Now, now you can start really putting a little money away. And I said, yes, but I've saved $10 a week along the way. Because one of the old timers told me to save a little bit, Henry. Put a couple dollars aside. So at the end of four years, I had saved a little over $2,000. $10 a week. You'd be surprised. You don't hear too much of this at the meeting. And people might say, well, you're getting materialistic. Well, for a man who was on skid road in a long overcoat, it, that's very important. Very important to be able to say, pay off your debts. I sent a man $20 one time in Seattle. And I said, uh, dear, his name was Rosalini. I said, dear Mr. Rosalini. He, I said, I was a fellow lawyer in Seattle. Uh, in 1944, when I come out of the army, and I called on you at your office and made a little loan, and you gave me $20, and closed as a money order for the $20. I hope you will waive the interest. And I got a letter back from the governor of the state of Washington. He was the governor. And the most beautiful letter, I used to read this letter at meetings, telling me how what he thought of AA, and how grateful that he was, that he knew a man a fellow lawyer who had done something about a problem. He said, if you could really come here and help our Bar Association. Well, uh, this, this is what, this is what I, uh, uh, well, so many wonderful things have happened. My, uh, getting back with my family, as I told you, I never did, never got married, but I was able to pay off my debts, get back to the profession, and then my friends. The friends I have made in AA, are worldwide, worldwide, and I'll try to tell you about that. I've had, I've had the, I've had the wonderful, a good fortune of sponsoring a woman. Bill Wilson himself gave me her name. He says, Henry, when you get a chance, if you get to the Isle of Mallorca, call on this woman. And I forgot about it. And when I got to Madrid, a lady there said, Henry, were you asked to call on a lady in, in on the Isle of Mallorca? And I said. Oh yes, and I said I wasn't sure I would get there. I told him at the, I told Bill in New York if I got there I would see her. Well, he said the lady has called again and wants to know when somebody from AA or from America is coming to see her. And I called on this woman about eight years ago, ten years ago, on the Isle of Mallorca, in a little little shabby hotel along the oceanfront, and she was a countess, the Countess Edith de Rigama. Never forget her name. Because when I called on her, I, I, when they said, I walked into this little hotel and everybody began to buzz around when I asked for this woman. And they said, the countess. And this woman came down. Of course, I was expecting somebody with one of these crowns on and she was, she was dressed like a hippie. And she had a long turtleneck sweater with the, was clear down almost to her knees and a pair of slacks and a pair of sandals, no stockings. And this was the woman. 
uh, that I was to bring the program to. I told that woman every story I knew. I told her all the women in alcohol, all, the, all about the women's stories and everything else. And one day she said to me, she says, Henry, you know what you're telling me? She says, you're telling me I'm only an alcoholic. She says, everybody else said I was crazy. My husband had me in an insane asylum. And she says, the man that runs this hotel got me out. He was a revolutionary I never knew. And he's the man that got me out. And he's the man that made me write the letter. And that's the reason you're here. I called a friend of mine. I just met this man. He wasn't, he was in Al-Anon in Madrid, an army captain. And he got his wife. And, she, and the wife says, yes, I will sponsor this woman. Send her to Madrid. And I bought her a ticket on the plane, sent her to Madrid. And they got her a job in the army PX. And this woman could speak seven languages. And she taught Spanish, she taught uh, Portuguese, she taught the servicemen's wives, worked in there, and worked her way back. Now this is what's come about in one. Then later on I met a man in Ireland, which I'll tell you about later. I'll probably conclude with that story, which was one of the big events in my life. The sponsor of a man with several children, a man who was about to commit suicide. I just was there. I think it was just... It was just one of those things that was timing and I happened to be there. Any of you people could have done the same thing. If you'd have stayed in there with him, he was ready to give up. And I'll tell you about that story. So, you see, my travels, I only tell my travels. I don't give a, a slide and tell you where all the cathedrals are and where all the castles. My, my stories of, of, are about AA, are, are about people in AA, people who want to come in, and how the groups are... are uh, uh, conducted in these foreign countries. Well, I um, was born in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, and I will talk about these things as I go along and try to talk about the program as I go along. I find this is the only way, because if I departmentalize my talking, I will just tell my qualification, you'll get nothing. I'll leave you hanging on a precipice. And so I will try to talk about the program as I go along. Well, I was born in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, and... Uh, uh, I came from a steel, steel town, coal mines, steel mills. My father worked in the steel mill, and uh, my father drank heavily, as most steel workers do, most coal miners. I grew up in this uh, hard-drinking community. I never took a drink while I was growing up, 20 years old. I went to the University of Pittsburgh when I was 18, and I went down there, went two years there, never drank there. And I, I didn't start drinking because I was lonely and all that sort of thing. I drank. Uh, at the University of Virginia for my first time. I went down to the University of Virginia. I was in dramatics. I uh, was. I didn't know whether to be at one time in my life. I didn't know whether to be a professor, an actor, or a lawyer. Ended up being a lawyer. And uh, but anyway, I uh, I had been in in the Pit Players, and I got a scholarship at the University of Virginia. Went down there at the age of twenty. They took me to a fraternity house the first night. They said, you're going to represent Pennsylvania. Set me at a long table, and across the table was Maine, Vermont, New York, New Hampshire. With, and uh, they were all on my side. And on the other side was Alabama, Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Virginia. The North would take a drink, and we were drinking out of mason jars then. These half-gallon bell jars filled with corn whiskey, sort of a white lightning. And uh, it was a good whiskey. It was a sugar whiskey. I thrived on it later and never went blind or anything. But, in fact, my sight got very good uh, 
I started wearing glasses, I think, after I quit drinking it. But anyway, uh, I, uh, and they say that uh, they've, a student in the medical school told me he performed, of course, he was an alcoholic himself, and he said that he performed a, uh, an autopsy on several alcoholics, and he said, my, he said, they have beautiful blood vessels. And I never forgot that when I was drinking. I said, well, at least I'll have beautiful blood vessels because the alcohol just cleans out all that sediment, see? Well, that's what he told me. Well, uh, I woke up with a Confederate flag draped around me and lilies in my hand and the South had won. And we decided then, the Northern team, that we would train. And I'll, I'll tell you this, from the first drink of whiskey, it did something to me. I, as I told you, I wasn't a, a shy boy, there was nothing, I was in dramatics, I was in student council work, and in the Jefferson Debating Society and all this sort of thing at Virginia. I mean, I, and at Pitt too, I wasn't shy and I didn't have any phobias that I know of. And, uh, but when I took a drink, I was a way up. And I got so high on two or three drinks, I wanted to stay up there. How are you going to stay if you quit drinking? Why do people take one or two drinks and quit? They're the people I can't understand, not me. Because when I have a few, I'm boom, I'm up here and I want to stay there. But how do you keep up there? You've got to keep drinking. So then a boy came in from Maine one day and offered me a drink before I got out of bed. When you drink in the morning, what morning do you quit? So at an early age, I began to go on benders. I would go on a spree. In England, they call these bouts. I don't know what you call them down in this neighborhood, but we call them bouts, sprees. Uh, at University of Virginia, he'd say, he's on it again. He's on it. That means that you would drink morning, noon, and night, sleep, catch as catch can, eat catch as can, and walk around the campus with your mason jar. Walk into a fraternity house, put it up on the mantle, and say, who's drinking with me? There'd always be somebody, have a few with you. We used to say, catch a few snorts, and you keep on going. And then when I would sober up, I would be sick, and I would be despondent. And you know, I can truthfully say, and I'm grateful uh, to God, I'm grateful that I have never had a headache when I was drinking, and I've never had a headache since I've quit drinking. So I've been blessed with very good health. And for, and for this, I'm very, very grateful. Now... A person with this kind of a physique, this kind of a physique, and throwing it away the way I was doing. At one stage in my drinking, when I come out of the war, I was drinking, I drank some canned heat with some, with an ex-dentist uh, from North Carolina, and an ex-engineer, uh, and they had mixed some canned heat, which they had pushed through a rag, and they were drinking with lemon pop, and I drank not very much of it, and my whole spinal column became uh, inflamed or infected, and I couldn't walk, I couldn't hold a comb, and I couldn't even, uh, well, I was just uh, immobilized. And the bums on Skid Road carried me down to the Veterans Administration and said, here's one of your veterans that can't walk, fix them up. And they did. Three months they had me walking, they had me talking, everything was fine. And a week later, I'm drinking again. So, I'm just telling you that because with, with the endowment that I had of a wonderful body, how I, how I played big stakes with this, with this health that I had. Well, and thank, I just thank the Lord that I quit when I did. I don't know what would have happened. 
because I had been, it was beginning to affect me mentally because I have spent three months in one place and six months in another mental institutions where a judge would say, let's put this man out of his misery for a while, let's put him in the state hospital. And that's what they did in Utah, and that's what they did here in Virginia. I had three months in Radford, three months in Radford, and they, they didn't know what to do with you then. I was a senior in law school and been on a bender for three weeks. They put me in the university hospital. They didn't know what to do with me. They said, we'll send him to Radford. And I'll never forget after a couple of, I think about three or four weeks there, the superintendent called me up because I had shaken it off and they gave me uh, this mechanical therapy and the whirlpool baths and, and vitamins. And when I, in three months, I'm well again. And he, the superintendent of the hospital called me in and he said, you're the type of man who should never drink. Don't you ever take a drink again because you're playing with your sanity. And I said, okay. About a month later, I'm drinking at Virginia Beach. Because I went, I wrote an uncle for a little money and said I wanted to, 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 uh, uh, I wanted to recuperate. And he sent me a little money. My sister sent me a little money. And I went up to Virginia Beach there and was drunk for two or three weeks. Just playing with my sanity, playing with my life. And so when people ask me, how do you get this enthusiasm about AA? I get the enthusiasm, I would say, because I'm grateful. I'm grateful that I was saved from this because I know that's where I, I would have ended up. Well, at the University of Virginia, I did graduate three times. I got a BA, I got an MA, I got a law degree, I made Phi Beta Kappa down there. I had a wonderful average, I had, I maintained scholarships, because drinking was a way of life at the university. A professor came up to me one time and he said, I think the gentleman is ill on the campus. He was dead drunk. And I said, yes, we will remove the paint, we will remove the, uh, our, our sick friend. He was dead drunk. In a tuxedo at nine o'clock in the morning, you know, we were going to class. This boy just missed the last dance, that's all. And, uh, we used to have Hal Kemp, and Guy Lombardo for our Easter and fall dances. Now they were two nice orchestras to have and they started to play about 10 o'clock at night and they played until dawn. We weren't allowed to drink during the dance. We were all on a pledge. But brother, when that dance was over, at 4 o'clock we all started with our mason jars and we started with all head for Afton and to see the sunrise and drink. And I don't know what happened to the dates. They would disappear, take them back to some... The girls would stay in certain fraternity houses, and then the boys would drink all that day. We weren't supposed to drink after 6 o'clock, so we could go to the dance at 10. And I remember these years just like they were yesterday, and I loved it there. But I, my alcoholism just kept growing and growing like topsy. Then my mother and father both died in one year. Now I had a new excuse to drink. I... Before I was drinking because I liked it, now I'm drinking because I'm an orphan. I used the orphan excuse till I was 40. <laughs> and uh, I maintain this. I might be wrong that a man or woman drinks because he or she wants to drink. I don't go into all the psychological reasons. I keep it simple, as Dr. Bob says. Whether my mother was, was scared by a bartender when she was carrying me, I don't know. But I know this, that if I take a drink, I can't handle the stuff. I want more and more and more until I'm out of line. And if it's a, and I'll declare holidays, 
If it's July 1st, I don't wait till the 4th. I declare the holiday on the 1st because this is a holiday. should have a long celebration, you know. But I'd be celebrating it maybe on decoration day, or I mean on Labor Day. And this would go on and on. I couldn't handle this stuff. But I've learned this in AA. I don't want to drink anymore, and I don't have to live. I mean, I don't have to drink anymore. And I, there was a time when I had to drink to even live with myself. So I don't want to drink. I don't have to drink anymore. And what I'm after is happy sobriety. Any doctor, any hospital can get any drunk sober. But how about keeping them sober? All these clinics and detoxification centers, they're wonderful. But they have to be some, there has to be a connection somewhere to give the person the continuing help that we give one another. And why they don't give us more, I not that I want credit, but I do like to see AA get a pat on the back, more so than they're getting by a lot of these professionals. I was telling some friends that I recently was at a, at a, one of these professional meetings, I was one of the speakers, and the man before me was a PhD, and uh, not an alcoholic though, he made that very clear, he was not one of us, and uh, uh, not one of those people, you know, these were uh, somewhat beyond the pale with a lot of people. And uh, he did say this, that alcohol, Alcoholics Anonymous uh, was an organization that was a tool that they could use. And they've done a lot of good work, but not very scientific in its, in its uh, methods. And he just dismissed it. And so when I began my talk, I said, I've tried all the other tools that you talk about, and none of them ever worked for me but Alcoholics Anonymous. That's the only tool that I've ever had that worked. And I've taken pledges. I've been in state hospitals. I've been to psychiatrists in the Army. They recommended me for a captaincy one time in the Army. They sent me to one of the best psychiatrists in, in Alaska. And he said, why, there's no problem here. He said, you were just a man who can't drink. Don't drink and you're all right. I'm like, well, thanks, Doc. And I was drunk on the way back to the base. You know, I mean, uh, uh, he, he was wrong. I mean, I could drink, but I couldn't handle it too well. I don't know. So, uh, I had, I might tell you, digress just for a minute. When I was in AA four years or five years, I, no, about six years, because I was back to practicing law, and I had taken my first trip to Europe, and everything was going fine for me, and I was invited to a party, uh, a very wealthy man who liked what I was doing and invited me to a party, and he had a, there was a drinking party. And, uh, but he said, he told the people, he said, my friend doesn't drink. So I came into the party and uh, there was one man there walked up to me and he says, Henry, why don't you drink? Are you against alcohol for any religious reasons or moral? No, no, I said, I'm an alcoholic. He said, who told you you're an alcoholic? He says, are you a psychiatrist? Did you analyze yourself? I said, no, I can't handle booze. He says, why, he said, uh, I bet you belong to Alcoholics Anonymous. I said, I do. I'm very proud of it. Oh, he said, they told you you're an alcoholic. I said, no, they never saw me drink, some of them. I said, the people in my home group now, I don't think anybody has seen me drink. And he says, Henry, he said, let me tell you something. I'm a psychiatrist. I'm a Harvard graduate, did graduate work at Johns Hopkins. Would you lie on the couch and let me psychoanalyze you? Why, I'd love it, I said. Free? I said, shoot the works, Doc. So I laid down on the Davenport. He put a pillow under my head. 
and he was going to show these people how you analyze a man who thinks he's an alcoholic. And so he, he analyzed me and he asked me all about my love life and whether my mother liked me better than my brother and my sister and a lot of crazy things. And finally he said, you know, Henry, you can drink now. I said, why, Doc? He said, because the things that caused you to drink have been removed. You don't have those symptoms anymore. You were worried about your profession. You're back there now. You were worried about your credit. It's reestablished. You're back with your sister. He said, you're back in society again. And now you can drink like a gentleman. Have a drink. I said, no, Doc, I'm still here. Well, he laughed. Well, you know, a year later, Sister Ignatia called me, and she says, Henry, would you come over to the hospital? There's a man wants to see you here. It's very important. And there was the doctor in the sheets. There was the doctor. And so, he's doing fine now. We had another psychiatrist who spoke at Cook's Forest from Detroit. He examined 5,000 alcoholics. Then he says, I'm one too. Oh, he was wonderful. Then he joined AA. It took 5,000 people, though, uh, before he could identify. Now, that's what I call a real bullheaded guy. 5,000 of them. Well, uh, see, I haven't even gotten you out of college yet, and I have a long way to go, and I only got about 15 minutes. But, uh, at, as I told you, I finally got out of the University of Virginia. My parents had died. I had a good excuse now. I was an orphan. And so I decided to go west. And I went west, didn't know where I was going, ended up in, in uh, Seattle, Washington, where I took odd jobs and was admitted to the bar, began to practice law, and the more money I made, the more I practiced. I used to say I drank because I was poor. Now I was rich, and I'm not rich, but I had money, and I drank more. So that's no Every excuse I had all went out the window. And finally I ran out of excuses eventually. Well, I fell in love with a girl by the name of Helen in a town of, called Tacoma. Bing Crosby, in fact, was born in this town. And uh, Tacoma, Washington, they call it the City of Destiny. And here's where I met Helen, and we fell in love. I did, anyway. And I proposed to Helen, and she laughed in my face. She says, Henry, you can't keep yourself. What would you do if you had children? What would you do? I said, well, I can quit drinking any time. She said, no, you can't. She says, it's gotten you. By this time, it had me. And I was then about to see... I graduated 26, I was about 30, along in there. I had everything a young man needed to, to make a success in the United States as a young lawyer. I had done some dramatic work, public speaking. I had three degrees. I was a member of the bar. I was a, I could practice in any federal court in the United States, with the exception of the Supreme Court, and that only just a question of going to Washington. And, uh, yeah, just, that's all you have to do at that time. If you were a member of your state bar and were appointed, uh, recommended by two lawyers and then I'll redo that and pay 25 bucks. And, uh, I was just admitted a couple of years ago. I thought it would be nice to hang on the wall, you know, that I'm a member of the Supreme Court, uh, that I can practice law before the Supreme Court. No big deal, any lawyer. But I thought that'd be nice. And, uh, but anyway, I, uh, when this girl turned me down, now I had a new excuse. The girl I love turned me down. I'm leaving. I sold out my practice to a friend, and I got about $2,000 for my practice. I had about two or $300 in the bank, sold my furniture, gave away my other, my other furniture and things that I had, all my, everything but my Phi Beta Kappa key and my diplomas, which I put in the storage somewhere with a friend, and I went to Honolulu. 
to seek my fortune in the territory of Hawaii. In three weeks, I'm flat broke living in the park, sw uh, swimming in the ocean for my baths and taking a bath up at a cathedral. And I remember a young priest talking to me one morning, and he says, young man, why don't you go home? He said, I see you here every morning. He said, my heart goes out to you. He said, you're, you're going to keep running, and you'll never run away from yourself. I'll never forget this. I've often thought of this, this man. He had a real interest in me, about the only person who did on the island of Oahu about this time. And then one day, of course, I got in jail four times over there. And then one day, walking around the parks, I happened to... I run into a bum and he says, why don't you get down and sign up and go to Canton? I said, where's Canton? China? He said, no. He said, it's in the South Pacific. I said, well, I'm going. Where do I go? Well, I went down and they examined me and I passed the examination and they shipped me off to Canton Island and I didn't know where it was. 250 men from all walks of life to build an airport for the United States government on Canton. We took a little island away from England on the Lend Lease. We should have let them keep it. On this island there was nothing. Now I'm dreaming of beautiful women dancing in the sarongs and the liquor flowing and there was nothing there but one palm tree. Nothing. <laughs> nothing but sand and water and our job was to build an airport with underground hangars. We had hard rock miners from Montana and cat skinners from Oklahoma and these were the men that I was working with and was with them for a year and 11 of these men were paroled from penitentiaries McAllister, Folsom, Sing Sing these were my buddies for a year and they called me slick they said he talks slick you know I could use a big word once in a while and they liked that they said, how would you have had me write the letters home? And some of these men couldn't read nor write. Tough, real tough American men that uh, you see these pictures, Oklahoma and all these pictures. These were the, uh, some of them were oil riggers and hard rock miners from Montana and Alaskans and gamblers. 250 of them. You know, I was down there one year with these men in the, in the war zone. Never got a scratch. Never got a scratch. Well, anyway... Uh, war was declared on December 7th. We were declared missing, and they, they, we had nine soldiers guarding our island. And so they, uh, they sent a little tugboat down to bring us, get us off this island, because the Japanese could have, uh, uh, captured us with a rowboat. But anyway, they came down and they, they got us, put us on this raft, and they towed us to Pango Pango. Now I'm gonna tell you this one story and then get off because I got a lot of ground to cover in 15 minutes. So, uh, I gotta get you back to the United States, I gotta get you around the world, and I gotta give you the program, but I won't give you the 12 steps. I'll have to skip that. Now, I, we got into Pango Pango on this raft, and I said to my buddy from Folsom Prison, I said, wouldn't it be wonderful if we go ashore tonight? The, just then the superintendent says, everybody stays on the raft for three days. We have to take inoculations. And my friend from Folsom Prison, he said, at 9 o'clock I'm going overboard. I said, if you do, I'll follow you. At 9 o'clock we started for shore. Shark-infested water, mile and a half away, we could hear the girls singing the hula on the, uh, in the shore of Pango, Pango, and we made it. And just as I came up on the shore, I heard, halt, who goes there? I said, Wilmer from Pennsylvania, don't shoot. <laughs> well, the Marines were wonderful. They said, okay, Pennsylvania, out of the water, 
So we got out of the water and they held up the barbed wire. They thought we were Japanese frogmen. So we came up on the, on the shore and they got us a little beer and they said, now you're under arrest. And they put us in jail. We didn't care. They put us in jail and the next morning our superintendent got us out and gave us each fifty dollars. He said, that's all you're going to get. Everybody else gets a hundred. So my buddy and I, we bought a hundred dollars worth of rum. Bootleg rum from a New Zealander. And I said, let's go back in the war, back in the brush until the war's over. We didn't start it. He said, that's right. Now you talk about a hippie. I was a way out hippie then. So we went back in the brush with our hundred dollars worth of rum tied to a long pole. No, no beads, nothing, just liquor. I could have bought the island for this rum because one of the head talking chiefs invited me into his luau, into his, not luau, but into his valley. Into his valley we went and we began to drink our rum with the chief and several other chiefs. We had a couple powwows and, and we were the, we were the most popular men on the island. No one knew where we was. We were there ten days. No one, we were declared missing or eaten by sharks. No one knew where it was. My sister got a letter that I was missing uh, in the South Pacific, and she still has that letter, one of many that she received. But anyway, I was having a big time down with the chief. He ran out of rum, or we did. The chief says, now I mix you kava kava. I said, what's kava kava? Well, he says, I mix, I tell you, I show you. So he mixed kava kava. They have some kind of a root, the kava root. They mix it all up, and when you drink it, they gave... Uh, President Johnson, a little nip of it when he was down there, and I was hoping I'd give him a good jolt, because this this particular thing, uh, kava kava, it affects your spinal cord, and you become completely paralyzed. Now you have your senses, you can smile and laugh and sing, but you can't move. <laughs> and as these beautiful maidens would dance, now they do a beautiful hula in Samoa. This, the Hawaiian Samoa came from from Tahiti in Samoa. I mean the Hawaii, the uh, the one they do in Honolulu. The one in Samoa, I think, is more beautiful. But we couldn't move. And these girls would beckon to us in the moonlight with the, you know, and uh, the, the kava, with the, with the lava lavas. We couldn't move. And I said to my chief, it's a very frustrating experience. So I said to my, I said to my friend, I says, we got to get out of here. He says, what are we going to do? I said, stop drinking this stuff. So we did. And uh, I had traded my shirt and pants for a, for one of these lava lavas. And in the lava lava, full of kava kava, I went down into Pango Pango. And now I have always loved Pango Pango because as a student, and even today, I like Somerset Mall. And I used to read Somerset Mall, big red and these big stories. And I love Pango Pango. Uh, Sadie Thompson is set down in Pango Pango. And, uh, oh, I love these stories. And I thought, this is the place for me. So here I was on Pango And I take one step into the town and a United States Naval captain said, arrest that orangutan. <laughs> so I go to jail and I had to come up before this man the next morning. And he said, it takes a white man one to ten years to go native here. You've done it in ten days. <laughs> He said, you're a disgrace to the United States. He says, I don't know what to say. Take them back to the Marine barracks. Hold them there under guard until the Okila, the Okalaka, or whatever the name of the ship was. It was the, called the Flying Bird, and it was going somewhere. And they put me on the ship, and I ended up in New Caledonia. And that's where I spent one year of my life help, helping to build another airport. 
I knew a little French, and so they made me a boss of some French natives. And I had them running for all the rum and everything. They were the greatest rum runners. They'd swim with the, and carry a case in the water and everything else. And so I spent a year down there drinking, came back to the United States. The war was on, went to South America, lost my job there with the Guggenheims. I had a good job down there. I got drunk the first week, and they just shipped me back home. And then I got shipped back to San Francisco, blew my money, and uh, then I signed up for Kodiak, Alaska, and I worked up there about two months, went down to get a man out of jail one day, and I ended up in jail, and uh, I never went back to the job. When I sobered up, I'm in the United States Army, and I took the oath of allegiance in the island of Kodiak, and I spent a couple years in the Army, and I won't even go into that. I followed up my Army career something fierce. Came out of the United States Army in 1944, a buck private. Not a, not a PFC, a buck private. You can't go any lower than that. And, but I had, did have an honorable discharge. I got a medical discharge. And uh, I don't know just what they have on it. I've never seen it. But uh, I understand it's uh, acute alcoholism. Or chronic. Chronic, I guess it would be. Well, anyway, I got out of the Army and... Uh, in 1944, the war was still on, and this is when I began to jump from job to job. What was I? I was a dishwasher. I used to carry 13 and 14 union cards in my pocket. I was a, well, I had a combination card for one. I had, I could wash pots and pans and dishes and do a little janitorial work. That's mopping the kitchen. So I had that. Now that's a pretty good job for a man with three college degrees and a Phi Beta Kappa key. And this is the way I lived. I worked construction, I worked in logging camps, five logging camps, uh, all kinds of railroad. I was a gandy dancer, you know, these track workers, and I worked in a carnival for a while, tried to get on the stage at one time, did work with the scenery, uh, you know, moving the scenery on a stage, told them that I was an actor from back east, I wasn't, and uh, I would get, being, a, being an, a veteran, I could get a permit. And I had all these union cards, I had a boilermaker's card and a shipbuilder, shipbuilder's card. And one day I says, why work at all? And that's when I told you I became a bum and uh, I, I, was, I was a mess. Walking around with a long overcoat and the tennis shoes and I would bum in the morning. And in two hours I could make enough to stay drunk all day. And so I said, why work? And I used to, if things got bad, I would call on the lawyers personally walk into their office and tell them how I had fought the war for them and I was a lawyer and I had given up everything. All I need is a couple dollars uh, to get back to Tacoma, which was only 30, 40 miles away. They would give me five dollars. One man gave me 20 just to get rid of me. He said, how did he get in here? Throw him out. But I'd get 20 and then I'd stay drunk and this is the way I lived. Then I got a letter from my sister one day. She says, Henry, I'll never see you alive again. The war is over now. Where are you? What are you doing? She says, can't you ship your body back to Pennsylvania when you die? I've just bought you a grave for Christmas. <laughs> oh, I thought, she's going, she's going bananas, you see. So, in the meantime, a lawyer had picked me up and he got me straightened out. He got me temporarily sober. All these methods. I wasn't drunk all the time. I would sober up, but I couldn't stay sober. I figured I'd never go back practicing law. I have a good excuse now. It's the war. This is what the war did for me. And so I um, just wandered around. And this lawyer took me to his house and he got me a job in Alaska. And I went back up there as a pipe fitter's helper. 
and I saved $2,500. I took a pledge that time for life. And not a month or a day, life. And uh, I kept it five months. And I got another letter from my sister, and finally I thought, I'll go home now, and I'll be loaded with money, and they'll say how successful he is. Because I could spend money fast, and so $2,500, spend about 500 a day, I'd get out of there in five days, and I'd think I had millions. And so, but when I arrived in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, I had been gone 12 years. And I arrived with seven cents in my pocket. The, the milkman delivered me to the door with the morning milk. Here he is. And my sister, my brother-in-law, came to the door in his bathrobe and he said, You must be Henry. I said, Who are you? He says, I'm brother, I'm your brother-in-law, Jack. And I says, Well, I'm, he said, You must be Henry. And I said, Well, how did you know? And I'm in tennis shoes and a long overcoat, whiskers, and, uh, well, I have an Uncle Willie left home in 1907. He's never been back. And so, my family, my sister came down and she fainted. We were always very close. She even put off her marriage so she could help me in college. She's married now and I hadn't seen her for 12 years and she fainted. And, and uh, when she came to, I'm drinking all the whiskey that Jack had brought out. And I'm stiff and he called my brother in New York and he worked for Life and Time magazine and had married a socialite, Lois. Her father owned a field and stream magazine. And Lois, Lois was brought up in private schools and Vassar and whatnot. And so when Lois came in the house, she says, where is this? Gorilla or whatever he is, my brother-in-law. This is how she greeted me, who had devoted his life to fighting for his country. And so she says, where is he? And they said, he's in the kitchen drinking. And she came out. The first thing she said to me was, I will never have children to your brother. Well, I says, when I go back practicing law, I'm getting my brother a free divorce from you. Well, I just met her. I was sober 18 years, and she told my sister, Henry, will never make it. He'll never make it. You know, now, I have learned, I have learned to love Lois. One of my platforms in AA, I have learned to love Lois. Because if I picked up a glass of whiskey tonight, I'd see her face in the glass. And I'd say, not tonight, Lois, and lay it down. If you have anybody in the family that's giving you a bad time, let them help you. I wouldn't take a drink despite Lois. Well, I don't have too much time, but my family finally told me to leave and never come back. And I ended up in Cleveland, Ohio, where I found out, I, of course I ended up on Skid Road. My first job was washing dishes. I was the fastest dishwasher in the West. I could get a job anytime washing dishes. I got one. and. The cook sent me out for some muscatel. I ended up doing the cooking. And so we both got fired. So I couldn't hold a dishwashing job. I was a failure as a brother. I was a failure at everything. Then you'll wonder why I'm grateful to this program and grateful for a convention like this in your committee inviting me down here to share this wonderful weekend with you. Because to me, I would like to continue this relationship the rest of my life. The rest of my life, because this is my life, and this is where I belong. And so, um, it was rough. And I called this friend 
who had gone to the University of Virginia with me, who was now a millionaire, I had heard, and I called on him. And he says, Henry, what happened to you? I'm in tennis shoes and dungarees again. <laughs> and he says, my God, Henry. He said, what happened? I said, it's the war, Jim. <laughs> well, he says, what happened to you? I said, the Japanese. <laughs> the Japanese? I said, yes, I've been in a Japanese concentration camp for almost four years. I've been on a rice diet all this time. Oh, he said, would a hundred dollars help you? Help me. I said, it'll cure me. And he gave me a hundred and he gave me another hundred and he gave me one thousand dollars in a month. And that didn't do any good. Seeing my sister didn't do any good. The state hospitals didn't do any good. The pledges didn't do any good. Now, where are, where are all these, uh, uh, these wonderful people that say, it's just another tool. What a tool this is, because it was through AA that I came back and was able to get sober, stay sober, and still, and still sober, and build up a philosophy of living, which I didn't have. And so, I, um, uh, this friend, he didn't know what to do with me, wonderful man, he drank, he was in the OSS during the war, he drank heavily. Wonderful guy, a man's man, he used to be on the boxing team at the University of Virginia, a real guy. And one night he cried. He said, Henry, I'm a big, strong man. I was on the boxing team at the U of VA. And he says, I don't know what to do with you. He said, I love you as a brother, but I don't know what to do with you. Should I put you away? Oh, I said, just give me another hundred. <laughs> so he gave me 140 bucks that night and sent me out in the rain. Well, 140 bucks with money. It didn't matter. It was lightning or thundering. It didn't matter. I could always get booze. And that's all you needed. And so... I broke again. I got in jail. When I got out of the jail, he got me out, and he called in a doctor and a lawyer, a cardiologist, Dr. Beck. He was a great research man. He was the first doctor on hearts, open heart surgery in the United States, or in the world, I guess. And he came. I went to his... Uh, I come over to the Jim's laboratory, and Dr. Beck was there. He looked like W.C. Fields. And I walked in. He says, Dr. Beck wants to see. I said, who's he? Oh, he's a great doctor. Go and say hello to him. And I said, hello, Dr. Beck. I'm Henry Warmer. Yes, Henry, sit down. He said, just a minute. And he walked out and told my friend he's a drunkard. Fifteen minutes he analyzed me. He said, he's a drunkard. He's an alcoholic. Get him in AA or this guy will die or go bananas. He said, that's all you got to do. So they didn't know how to get me in. So they called AA. And thank goodness there was a man that said, this man didn't say, have him call me at seven o'clock. The man says, where is this orangutan? They said... Right now, he's in jail. He said, okay, I'll go over and get him. And this man was the president of the Cleveland Brass Company. And this man went over, he had a brand new Oldsmobile, drove over there, and he got me out of jail. And he was the first man to talk to me and not down to me. And he says, Henry, you're just like I am. And this man's brother-in-law was the Bishop of Youngstown. His wife was the most wonderful woman, and I give her almost as much credit as my... Well, I should say as much. Because when he would give up on me, his wife would say, Henry, he'd say, Frank, Henry isn't as bad as you are. He'd say, what do you mean he's not as bad? I've been sober seven years now. I was sponsored by Bill Wilson in New York, and I can't get him to stay sober a month. She says... But Henry doesn't have six children and a wife like you did. He's all alone. She's, can't you give him a little more time? One more time, Frank. And four times I was hospitalized. 
And then in the last hospital, which was the Indiana, which was the, uh, which was a jail in Indianapolis. That was my last hospitalization. See, it sounds better to say hospital. But it was in jail, where a judge said to me, I'm gonna give you something that'll work. Nine days. And that was, that was about, that was 25 years ago this Christmas. I got out of that jail. I've never had a drink. What did I do? I came back and now I took that first step. I'm an alcoholic. But I had a conviction. I accepted it. It was in my pores. Nobody could talk me out of it. I was an alcoholic. No psychiatrist or no one could tell me. I'm an alcoholic. I can't drink. Never be able to drink. But I'll do it one day at a time. If, I'm gonna, if I thought I was going to take a drink, I'll take a drink tomorrow. Not today. One day at a time. My sponsor was president of a company. I had a friend that was a millionaire. They offered me jobs. I said, no. No jobs. I'll get my own job. I'll wash dishes. I'll do anything. I'm going to work with my hands. And I worked with my hands for four years. Four years. And I paid off all my debts. I was working with the Teamsters. I got my union card yet in my pocket. My last union card was with the Teamsters. And I worked with them four years. I speak at their group every year. And I love it. I know almost every Teamster that's in out, that's in AA. I know practically all of them in AA, but I know a lot more of the teams because I've spoken, I've spoken before their, their big, uh, inner labor, uh, committee that they have once a year on alcoholism and dope addiction because it's a big, a lot of the Teamsters were using these bennies and uppers and downers and all that sort of thing. Well, anyway, uh, I paid off these debts. 1953, I'm going back to my profession. And I, I called the Supreme Court of Ohio and told them who I was. They sent me the application. I sent it in, and they admitted me. And I went down to the before the Supreme Court of the state of Ohio. And the Chief Justice, he said, "I want to congratulate you, thirteen men, but I want Henry Wilmer in my in my chambers." And I walked in. And I said, "Judge, do you want the certificate back?" He said, "No, Henry." He said, "I wanted to thank you personally for what you've done." He said, this is the most amazing thing that's ever happened to me as a judge. To readmit, to take a man into our bar who's gone through and have done what you've done and have helped the people that you have helped and the men that you have sponsored. He says, don't take a drink today. Here's the Supreme Court Chief Justice pleading with a guy who'd been on Skid Road. Don't take a drink. And then I met another judge who later was on the Supreme Court of Ohio, who was in AA. Who's, he's now in the Circuit Court of Appeals. So there's some pretty big men. Some uh, Hal and I were talking about that. You're in some pretty big company in the United States when you're a member of AA. When you've got a senator and you've got uh, men on the Supreme Court of our state, some of our biggest business executives, surgeons, doctors, you name it. Clergymen of all kinds. Well, I started back. One day at a time. One day at a time, keeping it simple, going to my meetings, and then they elected me secretary, and I, I took it conscientiously, and I, I kept going, and I got admitted to the bar. And my second year as a lawyer, I got a $7,500 fee. Now, that's all you're going to hear about my earnings or anything, but $7,500. I had it in my pocket. I was sort of on a dry drunk, and I, I carried the 7500 right in my pocket and walked up to a travel agency, and I said, what will you, what will you cost to send me to Europe? I want to go first class over and back on the Queen Mary and Queen Elizabeth. And he said about 2000 I said, I'll just pay you right now. And I took out this money and paid him off, and I went. 
And on the way over, my brother came down to see me off in New York, and he says, Henry, don't forget AA. First time he'd ever mentioned AA to me. He was proud of me, but he didn't want to talk about it. And so he says goodbye, and I got on the, I was up, they took the gangplank away, and I'm looking out over the skyline of New York. Great big man put his arm around me, and he says, my good man, are you an AA? And I said, yes, I am. He says, so am I, Edinburgh group, four years. Meet my wife from Wales. She's an AA, two years. We just had an American honeymoon. I said, what's that? Visiting AA groups all around America. That's our honeymoon. He says, would you join us for dinner? So there were three of us. When we got to Southampton, there were 11 of us. One was a Roman Catholic priest. And he's a friend of mine today. And so on the way over, this priest said, Henry, why don't you make this your hobby? Why don't you visit AA groups around the world? And so I called on one man up in Scotland. I didn't know who he was. I wrote him a letter. And when I got in there, I called him. And I was staying in the station hotel in Inverness, which is this up in the Highlands. And a great big man walked in about six feet four in kilts. And he says, is Henry in here? And I said, right here. He says, I'm Lord Taylor. Put it there, Henry. He says, let's get out of here and have some good Maxwell House coffee. Took me out and he got me in a great big car, big or some kind of a foreign car of some kind, Jag or something. And he took me to his club, introduced me to all his men as a fellow AA member from the United States. I'll never forget that. Lord Taylor. And we had our coffee, and I said, Lord, I said, what do I call you, Lord, or what do I call you? He said, oh, call me anything. He said, that's all right. He said, we're just drunks, ex-drunks. I said, how did you get into AA? He said, well, I was in my castle one night, and my wife threw the whiskey down the, down the sink. And he said, I didn't know what to do, and I called Scotland Yard. And I said, Scotland Yard? He said, uh, this is you, Taylor, Lord Taylor, up in the highlands of Inverness. Would you get me AA? I need help. And they said, hold the line, Lord, we'll get you AA. And he says, in one hour, there was a rap on his door, and there was his next door neighbor, another Lord. And he said, you and I are going to a meeting with him tonight. And I met the other Lord, and they were the two men who had started AA in the Highlands of Scotland. And they interested a, a psychiatrist, uh, with it, his name was, and then the moderator of the Church of Scotland, those four men, and AA was launched in Scotland. And they really, well, Glasgow, when I, last time I was in Glasgow, they had 18 groups. I uh, wrote a little letter to a man in Glasgow, and I said, I will arrive at a certain time. I'm an American in AA. I will arrive at 6 o'clock on the, on the train from Inverness. And when I arrived, a man met me, and he says, I'm Don. I said, I'm Henry. Meet Tess. I said, hello, Tess, how are you? Shook hands. She says, you're coming to our house. I said, no, I want to go to a hotel now. Well, we'll put your, well, let's just store your luggage for the time being anyway, Henry, because we want to show you our little house. So they took me to their little house. They got me in a little car, a little, one of these little, uh, English Fords. And he was a salesman, Don was, and he had a little black mustache and the velvet collar. We got out to his house and, uh, he said, go up and open the door, Henry. And I walked up and opened the door and I heard, welcome to Glasgow. And there was 30 AAs there, 15 couples. They all left their work in their homes to come over and greet an AA who was a complete stranger. I wasn't, nobody, no one had written a letter, only my little penny postcard or three cent card or whatever they charge over there. It just says, I'm a member of AA, we'll be in Glasgow at six o'clock. And there they were. Immediately I had 32 friends. And then we started going to the meetings. We went to Paisley and we went to Oban and we went to uh, Ayr and we went to Edinburgh. And we went all over. 
and I spent two weeks. I went back there seven times. And they have a little plaque over one of their bedrooms, Henry's room. And you know that uh, around Christmas time that used to get me, because I had no home really. And my home in Scotland was probably the only real home I had, because, uh, well, my sister's home, yes. And that's all I had. Uh, my apartment, there's nobody there. So, uh, this is the way I started, and then uh, I began, then every year I started visiting these different groups all over the world. Now, what I do, and I, when I came in, I was somewhat of an unbeliever, I would say almost an agnostic, and, and so coming to believe has been hard, and I was talking to Hal about that today. I, you see, I have come to believe that God is a power so great that I can't understand it. I don't have the faith that some people have, but I believe that it's a power, something like, oh, TV waves in the air, something like that. Now there are pictures in this room floating around, and there's music floating around, and if I press the certain buttons and have the machine up here, I, I, see the, I hear the music and I see the pictures. And I think God's power is something like that. If you're able to push the right buttons, you see the pictures, you see the, you hear the music, and you're in, you're in rhythm. The Hindus had a theory that we were like a bell. And if you, if you had a good life, your bell made symphony and music with the, with the universe. And I sort of like that. That God's power was like music. That if I did well, my little bell would play with the, with the, with the great universal orchestra. And so this is the way I began to think. And then I went to a couple retreats. And I went to, I went, and I talked to the Jesuits. I sat with the Quakers. I, I was telling Tommy I was baptized as a Methodist. I went back, I sat in the Methodist church. And I went to all these various churches. And I, I kept seeking. One man says, Henry, seeking, seeking is, you'll find, just keep seeking. And then one night I went to an AA meeting. And an Amishman with the whiskers was leading the meeting. And he says, we have to get honest. We have to be pure in our thoughts. He said, we, we just have to love. And he says, we, we have to share these things. And he says, we just have, we have to be unselfish. And I turned to a man next to me. I said, how am I going to get honest? I've been dishonest. I've been, I've been impure. I've done all these things. He says, Henry, can't you try a little bit each day to be a little better? I said, yes, I can. Well, he, and here he was a Roman Catholic priest. I said, oh, Father, I'm sorry. I said, uh, I'm non-Catholic. He said, no, I'm a member of AA. He said, I'm having the same problem you are, but I've been sober longer than you. He says, in the seeking, you'll get your relief. You'll make your progress in the seeking. And I'm still seeking. So I'm not worried. I'm still seeking. And that's one reason why I'm here. I'm still seeking. And I... I don't know. It must be wonderful to know that you found it. I, I don't feel I found I feel I have to work hard every day because I have to merit these wonderful graces that I get. And so my, my program is one of working, working. I'm praying for those potatoes, but I'm, I'm, I'm hoeing. I'm hoeing. And if I stop hoeing, that's when I've got to be in trouble. A man recently I was talking to, he said, well, Henry, you know why I'm sober? I said, why? Other people prayed for me. Well, I said, don't you do anything about it? He said, no. Well, I don't have that kind of faith. I have to work hard, work hard, 
And that's what I'm doing. Well, my time, see, I have gone over, and I hope you'll forgive me. Uh, in conclusion, I'm going to tell you uh, this one, one little story. But before I do that, I'm going to say this. To me, God is it right here, right here in this room. And for me, as a matter of a, I'm finding God's power in you people, in the people in Cleveland, South Africa, all over the world, they're with you people. And I think it's just that's part of God's plan for me, and this is how I figured it out for me. So I have come to believe that this power greater than myself can restore me to sanity, and from there on I work the steps with like everybody else. But I have to practice these principles in all my affairs, and I have to work hard. The one I like best of all is trying to give the program away. The eye, the eyeball to eyeball talk with the new man. And that's what I really love best of all. Well, I'll tell you this one little story and then sit down. I, uh, about ten years ago, I was traveling in Ireland. And a man, the train stopped in a place called Balik, Ireland, where they make the china. And I got out of the train and I got in the tea line to get some tea with the old ladies. And uh, I'm getting the tea, and behind me is a man gasping. He says, I'm going to die if I don't get a drink. And I turned around, and I says, pardon me, fellow, you're in the wrong line. The spirit line is over there. He said, Yank, I don't have the price. But if you buy me a drink, Yank, all the saints of Ireland will bless you. I said, I'll buy you double. Double blessing for you, he said. All right, I got him the double of Bushmills Irish whiskey. He drank it with alacrity. Boom, boom. And then he, I bought him another one. I got back on the train and he followed me and he had an old ticket and he got on the train. And he says, Yank, why didn't you drink? I said, I don't drink. Why don't you drink? It's so wonderful. He was mellow now. I said, well, I belong to Alcoholics Anonymous. What's that? And brother, he got a lead that he'll never forget. <laughs> he claims he never will. Because he was a captive audience and I had him there until we got to to uh, uh, Belfast. In Belfast, I says, well, I guess I'll say goodbye to you. I'm going to give you a couple of dollars here. You can change the money. He says, no, Yank, I want to go with you. I says, go with me where? To go somewhere where I can get sober like you're sober. And I took him to the AA club and I walked in, rapped on the door, and a man opened the door and he says, welcome to Belfast. He says, my name is Michael O'Grady and I'm the happiest man in the world. I've been sober four months. I used to act with Barry Fitzgerald on the English stage. I was a big shot and now I'm just a uh, recovering drunk. And my name is Patrick O'Grady. I'll never forget Pat O'Grady. Michael O'Grady. Never forget him. So we went in and Michael made us tea. He says, Henry, I've only been sober four months. He said, would you give me the gift of the new man? He says, you have to go back to the States. And he says, I want to sponsor him. I know I can get him sober. I said, he's all yours. My new friend was sitting there laughing. We bought him a, I bought him a couple shirts and a sweater. and I came back to the United States. And a year and a half later, I went back to Ireland. And when I got off the plane, there were about 14 men standing in the rain and one lady and two little children. And I walked up to the little group. I figured they were waiting for me. And one man walked up. He said, are you American Henry? That's what they called me over there. And I said, yes. Well, he said, Michael O'Grady won't be here. 
he died of a heart attack while you were on the way over. And he says, we just buried him a couple days ago, but there's another man here who wants to say hello. And there was my new man. He says, you don't know me anymore, do you, Henry? And I said, no, I don't place you. He said, I'm the man you met on the train. He said, I haven't had a drink for over a year. And this is my wife. We're back together again. And these are my little children. And he said, they want to shake hands with you. And they're two little boys with long overcoats. And I shook hands with little kids and they looked up at me. And he said, we want you over for dinner tonight, Henry. And she cooked a little duck. She cooked a duck on an open fireplace. It just had a couple rooms and a flat. And I went over. Seven years later, I went back. And he had a little house and a little car. And she says, Henry, I have a cashmere sweater now, which I never had. And she said, if you wanted my wedding ring, I would give it to you as a souvenir. She says, my man is the man that I married. Well, people want to know why, how I stay sober. I could see the, oh, I see Lois's face too in the glass, but I can also see those little kids, the little kids, that wife, this man, Michael O'Grady, and the thousands of other people. Because I know when I walk out that door tonight, I'm going to be a lot stronger than when I came in. And I hope that some of you people here tonight, if you don't get anything, I hope you got a little more hope. And I hope the old timers uh, lose some of the, the complacency that some of us get. I know, because we have a two-yacht group in Cleveland, and that's all they ever go to, that one group. They would never go to a conference. They have it all right there in their one group. Well, more power to them. I want to meet all the A's I can meet all over the world. I want to get something from this man, something from that man. And I'm so grateful I was able to meet Tommy. I might tell you this. I walked in a man's kitchen in Tasmania. I told you, and this man says, take this, take this back. This tape to Tommy Lover. And I started with that. I'll end with that to show you how all this all this space and all over the world, how what a what a universal bond of brotherhood we had. And so uh, with that I'm going to close and I'm going to close with a little poem. I'm not much for poetry up here. I like to read poetry. I have the Oxford Book of Poetry and the American Book of Poetry, the Oxford Book. And I do read a lot of poetry, but the little poem that I like, it's only three lines, was written by Lee Hunt. I want to close with that. And Lee Hunt said this, I sought my soul, but my soul I could not see. I sought my God, but he eluded me. I sought my brother, and then I found all three. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.